hello and welcome to episode 29 of Girls Gone Canon. Sansa, A Storm of Swords, Chapter 1. I am Chloe, one of your hosts. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor on Tumblr and on Twitter. And I'm Eliana, another one of your hosts. You can find me as Glass Table Girl on the Maester Monthly Podcast, the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, or Zayra's Metric on Twitter. This is the first Sansa chapter in A Storm of Swords. We are in A Storm of Swords. It's a lot. That's cool. I'm excited. Dude, this is the book. This is the book. This is a wild book. But is it the book? Look, it's just a wild. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I'm just I'm just poking fun, as many of you probably know. There is a an opinion in the fandom that A Storm of Swords is the best <laughs> book. Everyone's got their own opinions. Everyone can like whatever book they want. Yeah, I mean, sure, it's not, so. it It's definitely the most action-packed book, and I will not disagree with that. Yes, it is the most eventful book, but it's no A Feast for Crows. Agreed. So. <laughs> Which is the best book ever made. I could read it right now in front of you. I could pull that book out and I would read the whole thing to you if we had the time. Welcome to your 36-hour a Feast for Crows podcast. Maybe more than 36 hours. How long is the audiobook? I don't know. Probably long. <laughs> really long. <laughs> like, there's definitely more than 36 chapters in, in A Feast for Crows, so I would assume that it's longer than that. Okay, well, listen. If you know how long the Storm of Swords audiobook is, I'm not going to look it up. Please tell us. Please write in. Please tell us. I'll let someone else yeah. do it. <laughs> I don't think either of us listen to audiobooks. We're just, I'm just not very good. I can't. I tune out. I have to. I would have to double back and be like, "What happened?" Yeah, I have a bad attention span. I like to read it, and then like two pages later, I'll be like, "Wait a second. and I'll go back and I'll read it again. And go, huh? And then I'll like read forward until it's like I'm, I'm good. I'm good. We received some great tweets of note. Uh, I've pulled out particularly the ones in re- that are in response to discussions of Ver from last week. Squirrel fur. Squirrel fur. And. I'm going to start off with Amanda, a.k.a. Crow Food's daughter, who's lovely, and her response, though, is, it looks like a bunch of dicks. Please tell me I'm not the only one to see this. So, on the internet, all of you, if you also see dicks when you look at their cloth and fur, please tell at crowfood underscore SD. Uh, maybe don't. <laughs> don't. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. But what you should do is check out her YouTube channel. She is The Disputed Lands on YouTube. She's great. Uh, Really good work. She has a really great piece she put out about the Dothraki Sea last last week. Yeah, last week, this past week. So I really recommend it. Give her a try. She's great. We did have another tweet that's an actual factual, actual factual, that was fun, tweet from Virginie, uh, one of our good buddies, who said, fun fact in French, Ver sounds like ver. Is that right? I don't know. I think I don't that know I think the French. point is that they sound the same. So oh, so I did it okay. Probably. Well, I just you guys make fun of me when I say things. So ver ver ver. Uh, fun fact: in French, ver sounds like ver. Glass, the material and object. And although in the old versions of the tale, Cinderella's shoes are made of ver. The spelling switched to Ver later because that's what people came to think they heard, and it looked cool. So that's V-E-R-R-E. That's interesting. I didn't really know that. I had that. no idea. 
I I learned something new. I feel that I need to go research Cinderella more and wonder why it was made of squirrel fur, which actually does sound better for traipsing around in as opposed to glass shoes, but... I just assumed the glass shoes were part of like the patriarchy or some shit, but that's interesting. That's a, that's an interesting lost in translation thing too, right? Yeah. Stories changing translation, and especially with all this fire and blood reading going on, mm-hmm. uh, seeing a lot of that lately. So really interesting. I love that. Thanks, Virginie. Thank you. And so that brings us to a storm of swords, Sansa Stark. Clang, clang, clang. Dude, we got to Sansa and Storm. I'm really excited. This is our first chapter in Storm at all, right? Yeah. And we're with Sansa. What a great guide to have. This is a fantastic journey that we're on. We totally planned it this way. <laughs> Literally, though, we did. We, we did. We, we planned. We had this all mapped out, you guys. Your next four years with us. Buckle up, sunshine. You got a long way to go. Sansa has seven chapters in A Storm of Swords, so... One fewer than she did in Clash, right? And some are really spaced out, which we saw this kind of in Clash and game, and that the climax of her story, her chapters get a little closer together in chapters four and five. She does actually get the last chapter besides the epilogue where her mom steals the show for a mini second. The last Sansa chapter is a phenomenal ending, obviously. Mm -hmm. It's a heavy hitter. And Storm is a really wild book with so much going on and happening that it does a lot to change Sansa's arc and game. There was a great conversation recently happening on Twitter and Tumblr, I don't know if you got to see it going on, about Sansa Stark being a passive character in A Song of Ice and Fire. And I think it's hard to be objective about that in story because we meet so many prisoner of war and child soldier characters that are stuck in one world and mindset. Look at Jamie, whose chapter we talked to, we're going to talk about in just a minute. Jamie has different tools to break out of his chains than what Sansa gets to deal with, right, in Clash of Kings. She has nothing equipped to deal with the Lannisters. She has nothing except her courtesies, her beauty, and feigning dumb. In A Game of Thrones, she isn't passive at all. In fact, actions and inactions she takes, they aren't really plot changing, but they set off certain guns and bombs that escalate them. They kind of do the same in both Clash and Storm. Getting the magic hairnet is lying the bomb in Sansa's lap, but her choosing the hairnet isn't really what I consider did Joffrey in. Her conspiring with Dantos and the Godswood, choosing to strap a knife to her, setting off in the dark, lying to the castle guards, sneaking out to this drunk old man's sloppy kisses, and giving him enough courtesy to, well, what she thinks she's doing is, manipulate him into helping her get home. We learn in perfect timing as we transition into this book, A Storm of Swords, gold wins for everything. We learn it from the golden roses themselves, the Tyrells, where not only gold, but a golden harvest makes their name and fortune in King's Landing. The same golden harvest that they refused to give to the city in the first place, which had actually targeted Sansa in a series of unfortunate events in the riots. And what you were saying about what did Joffrey in? It's as much Sansa and the hairnet and Dantos as it is the things that happen in this upcoming chapter, as we're going to talk about, and what she decides to discuss with the Tyrells, who serve as a really interesting exploration of power uh, that women can wield in A Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, another set of unlikely mentors. In Clash, we had Sansa learning from Cersei a lot about the difficulties of being a woman and the sort of weapons that women can wield. 
tears and sexuality to manipulate the people around them. But of course, a lot of this is colored by Cersei's own limitations as a person and her own experiences. Like, she's been taught, as many of the women in the series, that being pretty and making babies is all that women really are for and can aspire to. But the Tyrells are entirely different. Like, Cersei feels powerless, she feels stymied, and the Tyrell women are some of Sansa's first steps into learning that uh, knowledge is power. A thing that uh, Cersei does not necessarily have a lot of. While the Tyrells also have to perform the song and dance of the court in front of everyone, they do so, though, by surrounding themselves with other women, which allows them to form alliances and courts, and they also create these narratives that make the commons love them, which, as we see, because we're going to just talk about fire and blood (laughs) all the time throughout this podcast, was so crucial to Jaehaerys securing power. Just going to drop that in there. Uh, and, of course, poison is a recurring motif in Sansa's story. Cersei talks about in Clash how love is a poison. And here we see literal poison come up twice in Sansa's storyline in Storm. The Tyrells use poison to protect the ones they love. And then there's poison again, of course, at the end in Sansa's last Storm chapter with Liza Aaron and Littlefinger, who eventually ends the book as Sansa's central teacher. But as always, none of Sansa's teachers really want anything that's best for her, and Storm is a part of her growth in learning to balance other people's desires and her own. Yeah, Sansa getting stuck with really undesirable mentors or people around her is something that happens to her quite often, right? It's like exercising that muscle that normal people don't want to exercise without, like, a choice. (laughs) Uh, A big part of Storm is Sansa's relationship with Tyrion, They intertwine as a duet in the Blackwater, and of course, throughout the book in A Storm of Swords, and at the climax, the death of Joffrey. They are thrown together, stuck together as husband and wife, so they're both kind of prisoners in their own relationship. And it's definitely something that we are going to get into in the next couple chapters. For sure, but before we do that, let's talk about Sansa 1 and talk about the chapters that start off Storm. Jamie 1. Jamie is being escorted to King's Landing by Brienne of Tarth and Cleos Frey. Later, after a haircut, some shit goes down with Robin Ryger. Ryger? I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> in Catalan 1, Hoster Tully tells us, in more or less his dying words, exactly why he wasn't the best parent. Edomir returns to River Run, voicing his disapproval to his sister's actions. Arya won. Arya and her party are lost on the road again. Arya dreams through her wolf, ravaging members of the Bloody Mummers. In Tyrion 1, Tyrion is denied his birthright after his work on the Blackwater. Davos 1. Solidor's son comes to the rescue of the Onion Knight, washed up on the sea, but Davos still drowns in the loss of his sons. Davos lives. Oh my god. Hashtag Davos lives. This all, of course, leads us up to Sansa Stark's first chapter in A Storm of Swords, where Sansa dines with the roses in their garden, trying to learn their true intent. While she dines, a new opportunity for escape seems to be on the horizon, the lush green gables of Highgarden. Sansa Stark, Storm of Swords 1, Marjorie, invites Sansa to eat with her and her court. Sansa, though, is nervous, and she's like, is this a trap? A trap. 
It's it's a tart. <laughs> she watched the Tyrell litter arrive. Um, we have a flashback to when they came in and how Marjorie was wearing a cloak of autumn flowers. I mentioned this in the Sansa 2 episode when I had a chance to jump on Not a Cast. Something about this undic clothing choice made of flowers really bugs me for the Tyrells. It's like, A, I get it, it's on the nose. The idea of Loras, and I mean, I've seen like Derby, someone pointed out the Derby flowers blankets, but I mean, Loras had a cape of roses, like, okay. And you're you're an attorney? Sure. This is, this is gonna be a fun book. <laughs> Feels very Balenciaga. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little, I get it, and I get the intent, and it's just a little much, though, for me. I mean, that's the Tyrells, you know, they're extra. Speaking more on fashion, though, Joffrey entered the city in his gilded armor, and Marjorie was wearing green. And, you know, again, Joffrey in this gilded armor, we're seeing that all that glitters is not gold. I also get flashbacks of Jamie. But anyway, Joffrey fucking sucks. <laughs> that's what's up with the gold. And Marjorie's in green, which we've discussed before, symbolizes many things in A Song of Ice and Fire. But when it's combined between her and Joffrey, it, I think, shows how the Tyrells like the Lannisters, are not ready or preparing for the winter to come. You know, something else interesting for your, like, minutely fire and blood update. Um, Marjorie, <gasps> and maybe maybe you'll catch this here, Eliana, come with me on this journey. Marjorie mm. is in her green, and Joffrey is in his gold, like the greens, and their banner, Aegon's banner with the golden dragon. Uh, uh, and yeah, no, it's definitely. And there. this could carry on for Tommen as well. It's just an interesting idea, especially between the two queens later on in this plot, Cersei and Marjorie, the greens and the blacks, the princess and the queen. Yep, the princess and the queen. But the queen and the queen. Yeah. Also, in case, since we, ha I guess, haven't mentioned this yet, we are putting out a Patreon episode this week because the month is ending, <laughs> and what we are doing is we are splitting up. And going really in-depth on the dance. We thought about doing it in one episode, but turns out the dance is really dense. There's so much new stuff to go over. There, There's just so much stuff in general. I think even if there weren't new stuff, it would be an endeavor. Well, here's the deal is we were very ambitious in general of wanting to do a Fire and Blood episode this month. Because we're, we're just, we're incorrigible, mostly. We are incorrigible. We're ambitious people, all right? We're like the Tyrells. Up-jumped. We're, we're killing it. What we're going to do is we're going to split up the dance, and in part one, we're going to talk about the context and the powder keg that's leading up to the dance, right, and the political situation there from the perspective of both the Blacks and the Greens. Yeah. And then the second episode, we're going to, in December, we're going to talk about the dance itself and the conflict, and then we're going to talk about the coda and what it means for Westeros, the aftermath, in January. Yes. Yes. We think. We don't know. We might save, we might, we might space these parts out, but for now, yeah. you're definitely going to get part one, uh, probably at the same time you're listening to this episode, uh, if you're a patron, you might get it a little earlier, depending on your tiers, so check that out. Two for one. So, of course, everybody cheers for Marjorie and Joffrey in Sansa's flashback, and Sansa thinks on how the small folk cheer her, but they hated Sansa. They would have killed her if Sandor hadn't saved her. She wonders if Joffrey put Marjorie up to this dinner, or if Marjorie just wants to get Sansa on her side. Sansa's so traumatized, she's fearing that 
Joffrey's just trying to embarrass her in front of this cool older girl who's like beautiful and she knows things and she's worrying that Joffrey's gonna have her stripped naked again in front of everyone. Right, or beaten or... I know. And all she can do at this point is wait for her Florian to save her and take dinner with the new queen-to-be. And she's afraid that she might be too mistrusting because everything that she's learned in King's Landing has been to mistrust those around her. I wish the Hound were here. The night of the battle, Sandor Clegane had come to her chambers to take her from the city, but Sansa had refused. Sometimes she lay awake at night, wondering if she'd been wise. She had a stained white cloak hidden in a cedar chest beneath her summer silks. She could not say why she'd kept it. The Hound had turned craven, she heard it said at the height of the battle. He got so drunk the imp had to take his men. But Sansa understood. She knew the secret of his burned face. It was only the fire he feared. That night, the wildfire had set the river itself ablaze and filled the very air with green flame. Even in the castle, Sansa had been afraid. Outside, she could scarcely imagine it. (sighs) Chloe, how do you feel? Listen, this is not fair. Wait, this is my podcast. I can feel however I want. This is your podcast. You can feel however you want. Don't kink shame me. I'm not kidding you. I'm just like, how do you feel? I know that you put this quote in here for reason, and I'm letting you unpack it. None is as accursed as the kink shamer. Oh my Eliana god. Eliana the kink slayer. I am not doing that. I'm giving you a space to be open. You're kink enabling. Is- <sighs> okay, anyways, so I do love this quote. It's kind of a passing quote right before the action of the chapter really starts to ramp up. It's talking about the action of a couple chapters ago in Clash of Kings for Sansa. So she's thinking about the Hound, and she's thinking about how she didn't go with him. And we do get that line that she kept his cloak, and it is in the bottom of her chest under her summer silks. I just think it's a great passage, and it really fills in with that theory we mentioned a couple chapters ago at the Blackwater Lady Gwyn's theory about uh, Sansa and the Kingsguard cloak and all the There's just some good stuff. Anyways, I digress. Loras Tyrell then comes to escort Sansa to her chambers because we're going to just bring both semi but not really fully formed love interests. And Kingsguard members. Yeah, that's true. Both Kingsguard, who are very different from one another. They're individuals. And he's super beautiful, so like, don't freak out. Sansa's not going to freak out. It's fine. She's doing great. She's totally freaking out. I'm imagining Louise when she's like, I don't know how to feel about what's that boy's name in Uh Boo Boo? Yeah, Boo Boo. That's Arya and Gendry. Oh true, true. And yeah, the freaking out. Anyway, Sansa's girly crush, she's freaking out, and then she loses senses of her tongue and she says like some things that they're definitely not meant to hurt on the surface, but they're obviously super sensitive topics for Loris. Yeah, she mentions his grandma first. She calls her the Queen of Thorns to his face, which, like, Sansa didn't realize, maybe that's not okay when I say it. And he's like, yeah, it's only okay when I say that. Like, what? He just kind of looks at her like, what is with this girl? So, if you guys recall, some Olena Terrell backstory. Olena was betrothed to Aegon the Unlikely's youngest son, Darren Targaryen. And the man she did marry, Luther Tyrell, was originally betrothed to Princess Shira. Both packs were broken, and Olena did everything in her power to not marry Darren, while Shira married her brother Jaehaerys, so Luther got off easy. 
and that Olena married Luther, so Olena Redwine turned into Olena Terrell. Yeah, I I do want to say that in Sansa's defense, I would not have thought that Queen of Thorns was an insulting name. It sounds right. like a badass name. But then you're like, oh, in that time, you know, for that little, like, society, it's probably not proper for a lady to go around being like the Queen of Thorns. Sure. Sure. But yeah, Olenna Tyrell is also past the point of caring. <laughs> I think she, I think she known it. Anyway. Sansa sees Garland Tyrell training against three to four men. And here's a fun Easter egg in this passage. So, um, Loris explains, Garland often trains against three men or even four. In battle, it is seldom one against one, he says, so he likes to be prepared. He must be very brave. He's a great knight, Sir Loris replied. A better sword than mm-hmm. me, in truth, though I'm the better lance. And I think this is a very fun small callback to a Game of Thrones in John 1, where John is talking to Benjamin, and it says, John spelled with pride. Rob is a stronger lance than I am, but I'm the better sword. And then we get like the, and Holland says, I sit a horse as well as anyone in the castle, yeah. you know, pointing towards Leona I love Lama, it. Whatever. I love that. Uh, That's a great little nod. Great catch. Yeah, it's like a little um, inverted, but it's definitely there. There are a lot of other ones, and I'm going to save them for John, obviously, when we get to his chapters someday. But I will save them for another day. However, however, uh, Sansa continues to stumble in her speech, and she hits, like, all the worst topics you could hit, right, with Loras. She's like, hey, let's talk about Robar Royce. And he's like, oh, the guy I had to fucking kill? Cool. And then she's like, hey, what about Renly? I'm so sorry for your sister. Your poor, poor sister. How terrible for your poor sister. And he's just saying, like, bitch, how terrible for me. Like, bitch. Like, she's it's so terrible bad to read uh-huh. this, right? You're just, like, so awkward. You're like, Sansa doesn't know. We know, but Sansa doesn't know. And she feels awful about it. And she was just excited because it's the Loris Terrell. And he showed her the tiniest knot of attention once. And what if he's the one to save me? Like, the Dragon Knight, Aemon, and Nerys. Like, Sansa girl, you're going to save yourself in the end. I love you, baby girl. Don't stop being you. You know, like. Do it for yourself. Yeah, you're going to do it for her, girl. You're going to do it for her. You're going to give that speech yeah. in the eerie to all the Vale men and be like, did my father not run through these halls? Blah, 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 blah. Like, take me home. Get my birthright. Anyways. Yeah, Sansa's going to be like, thank you next. And talking about her new, her new relationship with the best person, Sansa. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about sure. this far yeah. later ever. I should write that. Anyways, after... Enough awkward conversation. Sansa decides, I'm going to stop word vomiting on this poor boy before I ruin everything. Before I spoil everything. They come across Eric and Eric. Shout out to their predecessors, the Cargyles in Dance of the Dragons. (laughs) Hashtag fire and blood. And Sansa asks, who are they? And Laura says, that's Olena's personal guard. She calls them left and right. So... Really interesting there, just mm-hmm. like a direct nod. I love that. Loris brings Sansa to the Maiden Vault, and a little exposition on the Maiden Vault for you. Of course, it's the infamous keep behind the Sept in King's Landing, where Baylor the Blessed stowed his oh my God. temptatious sisters, Diana, Elena, and Reyna Targaryen, so, you know, they didn't seduce him in court. 
Of course, Diana snuck out to hook up with her cousin, Aegon the Unworthy, and birthed the man of them all, Damon Blackfire, but that is a tale for another day. Sansa bows to Marjorie when they come across one another and greets her as Your Grace. And Marjorie's like, oh, no, no honorifics. Don't use San or Coon with me. You can just call me Marjorie. Can I just call you Sansa? We get an introduction to the rest of the Tyrell court, starting with <laughs> the Tyrell court. <laughs> Starring Butterbumps, but also oh my he's God. the star. Do you like that I didn't even list him in these notes? Um. But, of course, we rattle off with Lord Tyrell's wife, Lady Allery Hightower, who has a long silvery braid. She's described as handsome at one point in the books, I think. Uh, and she has jeweled rings throughout her braid. We get Mega, Alla, and Eleanor, the maidens in the Maiden Vault themselves, as we advance through this story. We'll see that someday when we get to the Cersei chapters. I love I, those nods as well, that, of course, they're so innocent I've in there. I've never noticed this until you pointed this out. I don't know why. Well, I got you. I know. We meet someone that Eliana's about to be so excited about, Mace Tyrell's sister, Lady Janna Fossaway. She's married to John Fossaway, a green apple Fossaway, but also they have the best, like, couple name. First of all, I'm not going to combine it because, like, Janna sounds dumb and it's basically her first name. But it's, like, Janna and John. Adorable. Precious. Beautiful. Yeah. What if their son's name was John Jin? Oh, my God. <laughs> That's... What if... What if John Jin... Jojen Reed is their kid, but in hiding as Jojen Reed, it's really John. I who someone asked this recently. Is Benefer, Septon, Septon Benefer, Maester yeah. Benefer, right? What is his title? Grandmaster Benefer, a reference to Ben Affleck and Jennifer, fuck, what was her last name? Aniston's Jennifer yeah, Aniston. relationship. And I mean, it um, is. <laughs> I thought it was Ben, yeah. So we continue on to meet Garland Terrell's wife, Leonette Fossaway. We meet Septon Hysterica, Lady Alice Graceford, who is with child, Lady Bulwer, a girl younger than eight, Meredith Mary Crane, and of course, Lady Merriweather, the sultry beauty from Mir. And this entire sequence where we find out that there are like these 12 women at the table, this is not insignificant, okay? This is politics happening because look at how many different houses are here at this table with the future queen, now Marjorie Tyrell. And regardless of whether or not Marjorie was going to be queen, like this is how Marjorie was raised and this is the sort of thing that you could expect, uh, the sort of companionship that you could expect for highborn ladies. Like in the Maester Monthly episode we did like, a while ago called Women of Westeros, Mighty Isabel Fatwalda and Basemaster and I discussed the importance of noble women having their own ladies in court or like in waiting and the importance of this in forging alliances. Like with everyone, all these women dying in childbirth prior to the start of A Song of Ice and Fire and Robert's Rebellion, the story that we come into proper in A Game of Thrones starts with a lot less women that might have been normal or expected. Especially, like, look at Fire and Blood. And it could be argued that this is a big part of that fractured political landscape in Westeros because a lack of that knowledge on the social dynamics or that forging of alliances, these courts, these were necessary to bind together the realm. But this idea of a ladies' court being normal 
is bolstered by fire and blood. They discuss Queen Alisande's girlhood because at some point we're going to talk a little more about a young lady's education, probably. And, but we do get quite a bit of information from Maester Gildane when he's making conjectures because it actually wasn't chronicled for Alisande's early years as the youngest child of House Targaryen and a daughter. But he stresses, quoting, As a princess of the royal household, Alisande would of course have had servants and companions from an early age. Girls of common birth would have served as her maids, washing her clothing and emptying her chamber pot, and in good time, she would certainly have taken ladies of a like age and noble blood as companions to ride and play and sew with. Which is one part, along with the other schemes, of why Queen Alyssa sends more women to Alicene, but it is notable that Sansa is alone in King's Landing. Like, this is a big part of lessening and taking away her power. It's why Cersei was so adamant about isolating her from Jane. She's like, why is that girl there? But it's also insight into why Cersei is giving the sorts of lessons she does to Sansa, which is full of internalized misogyny. She doesn't understand this stuff at all, because it seems like Tywin didn't seem to have invested in this kind of childhood for Cersei, but we can see that Joanna Lannister was starting to do that. She ha was friends with Elia Martell. She was creating these alliances, trying to get them to be friends. And alliances among women are very key for the Game of Thrones. Yeah, and in Fire and Blood, we get a lot of details of court life and princess life and how those girls are there for a reason. They're there to watch over the princess or the queen and make sure that she is not in danger. They're there to tattle on the girl. They're straight up told you should tattle if she gets into trouble. Something we see in a couple stories where it was a working process for someone like Alison, or where it wasn't a working process for someone like Sarah Targaryen. It also really shows you how ill-prepared Sansa is when she steps foot in the capital. The North in general is ill at place in politics. They usually don't have the people, right? It's the biggest, most spacious kingdom, but the least populous. Even so, there were totally enough girls to come with Sansa her age of higher-born houses in the North, and not even higher-born, just in the North. Eddard doesn't even think about how she may need that sort of support system. He never tried to wed Rob to anyone in the North, as we hear talked about from Alice Karstark. And Sansa didn't come to court with Alice Karstark or Beth Castle or Winifred or Wyla Manderley or... Barbary Riswell, or even one of the Mormont girls, or two of them. That's not how the North plays. They don't want to play. Ned brought the steward of his house's daughter, and Arya brought no one. <laughs> uh, no one. Had Sansa had this guidance, though, and had Olena in her ear explaining court to her, explaining the things the king was hearing, this story would have gone way differently. For Sansa, the Red Keep is a pale pink nightmare, but life is bleak and colorless there. The lands beyond the castle, behind the sept in the rose garden, are a lot like Eden in this chapter. The fruit is luscious and tempting, and the color seems to fill the air. It leads in towards Sansa as a Persephone-esque character in her underworld pomegranate eating with Littlefinger. Which, of course, like, did you notice in this chapter later, Olena's all like, no, don't blush with your hair, it makes you look like a pomegranate. Yeah, I love that. It's such a, it's a very Persephone thing. Like, Sansa just gets so much Persephone imagery. She's a very half-winter, half-summer queen. I really love this point. Sorry, I just got to riff on something you said about all these other houses that Ned could have brought with him. And granted, Castle, I guess, wasn't strong enough because we see how Jory Castle was just cut down. But had yeah. Ned brought all of these other people of of they're not like high houses but they aren't 
you they're not dismissible. Like the Manderleys are a powerful house because they control so much of the trade. Had he done that, it would have been harder, I think, for the Lannisters to pull what they did because they would have incurred the wrath of a lot of these other houses. It would have put more pressure on the Lannisters politically. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and even so, like the Karstarks, yeah. that is a great match to have to bring Alice Karstark to course would have been great. That's like the Stark La- Stark Lannisters of Lannisport, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that's that's basically that off branch that other house Dane. Like that's that would have been. It's still a big deal in the North. Like yes, the North. A lot of these houses are lower Castle, etc. But I mean, look at where Beth Castle is now. I mean, she's in the dungeons of the Dreadfort, mm-hmm. you know, taken as a hostage. So, like you said, if they had bonded those forces together and had these people come to court uh, and if they were prepared for that then it could have gone a lot more successful yeah it's not nothing because i mean look at the Karstarks, the Rizwells, any of them they're comparable to what the fossaways or any of those other houses yeah. they're on par i mean graceford that's not a big house yeah they're on par Bulwer, Graceford, no one cares about them. I'm just saying, it's not it's not names you hear until you hear about Marjorie's retinue. Exactly. And of course, in the retinue, she's not really part of the retinue, she's the star of the show. Last and certainly not least, mm. Marjorie presents us with the real MVP, her grandmother, Elena Tyrell. You want to be Olena? You can be Olena. Is that what you, you want, want for me? Yeah, I'll be Marjorie. I can be a seductress. Okay. Sweet seductress, I am honored to present my grandmother, the Lady Olena, widow to the late Luther Tyrell, Lord of Highgarden, whose memory is a comfort to us all. The old woman smelled of rose water. Why, she's just the littlest bit of a thing. There was nothing the least bit thorny about her. Kiss me, child, Lady Olena said, tugging at Sansa's wrist with a soft-spotted hand. It is so kind of you to sup with me and my foolish flock of hens. That might be the best one yet. <laughs> I mean, it was very similar to your Eamon in a couple ways, but anyways, I did. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it was good. It was great for me. Thank you. That's really what I wanted. <laughs> do it for you. I know. Not you really. Do. I do it for me. <laughs> do it for yourself, Sansa. Do it for yourself. Yeah, baby. Olena says she knew Lord Rickard Carstart, or fuck. Olena said she knew. Lord Rickard Stark, and Sansa responds he died before she was born. She never knew him. Olena comments her other grandfather is said to be dying too, Hoster Tully, and that she's sorry for Sansa's griefs and losses. Sansa offers her courtesies for Renly's death, which seems to please the Tyrell clan enough, except for Olena, of course. Her grandmother snorted. Gallant, yes, and charming, and very clean. He knew how to dress, and he knew how to smile, and he knew how to bathe, and somehow he got the notion that this made him fit to be king. The Baratheons have always had some queer notions, to be sure. It comes from their Targaryen blood, I should think. They tried to marry to a Targaryen once, but I soon put an end to that. Renly was brave and gentle, grandmother, said Marjorie. Father liked him as well, and so did Loris. Loris is young, Lady Elena said crisply, and very good at knocking men off horses with a stick. Mm. That does not make him wise. 
As to your father, would that I'd been born a peasant woman with a big wooden spoon, I might have been able to beat some sense into his fat head. <laughs> Grandma, stop! <laughs> Hearing you do that out loud in retreat. Thank you, Eliana. You're welcome. Thank you for everything you I, do for me. I'm here for the rest of this episode. There's so <laughs> many fucking quotes. I did it on purpose. Did you really? Is this yeah. really your plan? I didn't yeah. know that. I thought you were planning on being Olena, and then you were like, no. do you want to be Olena? No, I knew you'd do it if I made you. <laughs> you were like, oh, no, I want to be. I was like, I know. <laughs> I was like, I'll do whatever you want. See, I'm getting pretty Tyrell on this. I'm a very cautious schemer here. I schemed <laughs> to have you be Olena the whole episode. God, are you are you uh, Littlefinger preying upon my desires and giving me my heart's desires? <laughs> without yeah, me knowing desire, it which is the queen you want to be the queen oh my god <laughs> i love that line about baratheons had queer notions with fire and blood coming out there's a lot of good baratheon uh exposition to learn and we learn of course oris and roger baratheon for example they've always basically been kings in waiting that up jumped baratheon feel that they just want a taste of that royal blood oh yeah that's definitely been driven home by that book. And also here we see um, briefly something that's going to be repeated throughout this chapter and the rest of probably all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Aletta teaching Sansa once more that beauty is not the same as good. And she more or less says like, yeah, we're roses, but like when roses fart, it still smells like shit. So, <laughs> Or as uh, the band Outcast so beautifully put, roses exactly. smell like... Boo, boo, boo. After calling her son an oaf and telling Allery she is not Olena's daughter, Marjorie tells Grandma she needs to calm down before Sansa thinks they're crazy. Grandmother, Marjorie said, mind your words or what will Sansa think of us? She might think we have some wits about us. One of us at any rate. The old woman turned back to Sansa. It's treason, I warned them. Robert has two sons, and Renly has an older brother. How can he possibly have any claim to that ugly iron chair? Tut, tut, says my son. Don't you want your sweetling to be queen? You Starks were kings once, the Aarons and the Lannisters as well, and even the Baratheons through the female line. But the Tyrells were no more than stewards until Aeon the Dragon came along and cooked the rightful king of the Reach on the Field of Fire. If truth be told, even our claim to Highgarden is a bit dodgy, just as those dreadful florids are always whining. What does it matter, you ask? And of course it doesn't, except to oafs like my son. The thought that one day he may see his grandson with his arse on the Iron Throne makes may puff up like... Now what do you call it, Marjorie? You're clever. Be a dear and tell your poor old half-daft grandmother the name of that queer fish from the Summer Isles that puffs up to ten times its own size when you poke it. Uh, they call them pufffish, grandmother. <sighs> of course they do. Summer Islanders have no imagination. My son ought to take the puffish for his sigil, if truth be told. He could put a crown on it, the way the Baratheons do their stag. Mayhap that would make him happy. We should have stayed well out of this bloody foolishness, if you ask me, but once the cow's been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up or at her. After Lord Puffish put that crown on Renly's head, we were into the pudding, up to our knees. So here we are to see things through. And what do you say to that, Sansa?
Oh my god, that was everything I ever oh wanted. God. Diana Rigg, move over. Oh my fucking god. These are so long. <laughs> You're like, I'm never reading again. Oh my god. Oh. Do you, and guess what? You get to be Butterbumps later, too. Do I? I'm gonna have to think about what I'm gonna do for Butterbumps. I haven't thought that far ahead in my life. Christ. I really haven't. Just take it as it comes, Eliana. All I'm right. very proud. Alright, thank you. Uh, but coming back to the content of what we're reading, I did just realize, of course, that it doesn't actually make anything easier for San to hear, but Elena is admitting to treason. And I don't know if this was like an attempt to try and get Sansa to open up, like, look, we're all traitors. Just tell us what we want to know, fellow traitor. Right. It definitely lays the ground to say, hey, they're not new to this game. They've killed before and they're going to kill again. <laughs> Sansa's like really speechless at this. She's like, oh, OK, like, damn. Um, uh, And she finally comes up with, well, you guys can trace your lineage back to Garth the Greenhand, though. And Olana's like, okay, but who the fuck can't? She's all Rowan, Oakheart, Florent, and pretty much everyone else in the Reach claims that Garth boned their ancestors. Like, that's not, it's not your best line, Sansa. And she's flustered and there's a lot going on. Lady Allery interrupts them and she changes the subject and asks Sansa if she wants boar and lemon cakes, which of course she wants lemon cakes. She's a reasonable human being. Agreed. Sansa counters those are her favorites, which Olena's like, yeah, Varys told us. Don't know why he had to tell us that. You know, no clue. Not sure. But he told us that. So whatever. And then she goes on just like grandma needs to take her meds. Uh, like now, grandma, like don't take your wig off again. You know, that's how I feel this whole chapter. I'm like, damn, she's wild. She's never understood the point of a eunuch. They're men with the useful bits cut off. I mean, I'm going to be Olena when I grow up. Oleniana, never mind. Oleana, whatever. Anyway, Loliana. Loliana. Do you think? Do you think Varys said this to Olena because he was like, "That poor girl needs something good in her life. Give her lemon cakes." I hope so. I hope like I hope he was like, take some high garden Kush, roll it up, okay, in a weirwood leaf. Roll it up in a weirwood leaf. Lace it with a little bit of that there weirwood paste. And, like, just hand her that, hand her that, and a good old lemon cake. That's what that girl needs. Let Sansa Stark finish her blunt. Yeah, the butter bumps. Is it What kind of butter is this, you know? Sweet butter. <laughs> that was good, Eliana. Good job. Thank you. I, I did it. heard of the drugs before. I've heard of drugs. What are drugs? <laughs> Coming back to get to the story. Uh, Olena talking about not understanding the point of a eunuch. There is an interesting inversion here, I think. Just throwing this out there. That Olena... Again, she is old enough to be past the point of caring, which, bless her, again, goals, goals. And she's saying the exact opposite of what all the rest of Westerosi society seems to be telling them, especially telling women. They're telling women that they're only useful for their wombs and making babies. But throughout this chapter, Elena's being like, no, we have our wits. Men are fucking dumb. And they're only good for their seed or pleasure. <laughs> which, like, up top, Elena, up top. And... This is something I did like, though, like how the show treated her. They still gave her these like badass lines, these mm -hmm. snippy little things. And I mean, she even says straight up to Sansa, Diana Rigg has that line and she grasps like Sansa's wrist. And she's like, so what do you say about that, Sansa? <laughs> and it was just like, it, it's good. Like they really did good by her in the show. They gave mm -hmm. her a good arc. They gave her a good actress and good arc and good lines. Yeah, they really hooked it up. Well, I mean, it's Diana Rigg, yeah. dude. You gotta. I but mean, they she did, was perfect. They did her good all the way up until the end, you know? 
Not we can't say that for every character. Like we cannot say that for Doran. Yeah, Doran didn't get shit. They yeah. didn't give Doran shit. They just shit on him. You know what they did to Doran? They just took a big old poop and they just yeah. put it on his lap. Oh, I was talking about Doran, but I also meant all of Doran. In oh, general. All of Doran. No, yeah, that's even worse. They didn't just poop on Doran. They like took Dorn and they put it in the world's biggest blender and just mashed it up with oh sand God. and sadness and ruining. Olenna introduces us to the best character in this arc, Eliana would argue. Butterbumps. I didn't say that. I just think he's very you talented. Love him. I do you, love him. You really respect his craft. I do, actually. He's an artist. Anyways, go on. Uh, he should never have dropped out of liberal arts college. Um, Olena asks Sansa if she likes fools. And I'm imagining in this moment when Butterbumps is traipsing around and right before and Olena, you know, says, do you like fools, Sansa? Oh, shit, dude. Her heart's got to be like out of her butt. She's probably like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? Do I like fools? No, I don't. I don't like fools. I don't like anything about fools. I've never heard of fools. Why are you talking about fools? I, I don't talk to one every night in the godswood. What? What is what about a fool? Fools? What's a fool? You know, she's probably sitting there like, fuck, fuck, fuck. This is a setup. This is a setup, dude. This is a trap. <laughs> if, you're the, if you're the cops, you gotta tell me. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta tell me that you're the cops. And if you are the cops, everything I did in front of you does not count. Uh, <laughs> Butterbumps is wearing this big motley outfit. It's got like green and yellow feathers. And he like straight up just lays an egg on the table at Sansa. This is like the weirdest. weirdest this is the this best. Is extra. He's great at his job. This is area Targaryen shit right here. This is area Targaryen levels of horror and surrealness right here. Sansa breaks the egg and a billion little baby chicks fly out of it. He tells her catch the chicks and Lady Bulwer catches one. And hands it back to him. And he eats the chick. And Lady Bulwer is like bawling. Because she's like a five year old. And the chick comes out of his sleeve. And she's like yay I'm happy again. Because I'm a kid. And I you know anyway the wind blows. You forgot the part where the feathers come out of his mouth. When he pretends to saw the chick. Because Butterbumps again. Is an artiste. He's a master <laughs> of his craft. Uh, you I'm said sorry. he went to liberal arts college. I'm going to say. Butterbumps both went. To the Tisch School in NYU, and then he later went to UCLA. You know, I was gonna say he went to uh, Columbia, but oh yeah, he did that too. Yeah, oh so he got, that's where he got his doctorate. Oh my god, I I had a friend that went to Columbia, and she lived in this fancy ass art school apartment, mm-hmm. and there was a whole entire room that you could like at the top floor of the apartment building that you could just go in there and spray paint. That's what I imagine this is like. <laughs> that's where Butterbumps honed his craft. Butterbumps, you know, again, he can make feathers come out of his mouth. Later on, we're going to see him bust out some of his other talents, such as bouncing oranges on his head. And then he spits the seeds out of his nose. This is like some next level, like, Yoshi's Island shit, okay? He's really actually very good at his job. Oh my god, Yoshi's Cookie, but with Butterbumps and the chicks. I don't know Yoshi's Cookie, though. Oh, it's the one where he eats the cookies in a row, if they're in a row of Oh, four. I know, I do know this one, yes. I do yes. know this one. But real talk, he definitely makes King's Ling this like this makes King's Landing's court look like really serious baby town frolics in comparison, right? Like some meta here. Look at Cersei's court and Moonboy and Dantos and the dreary dark quality. And then look at the Tyrells. 
I guess you can't buy that kind of class, Cersei. Oh, damn. You're playing your game better at it than you. And they even remember to have fun when they murdered people. XOXO. <laughs> or is it just that Butterbumps is actually good at his job because he's this is his <laughs> first profession, you know? He's not freelancing as a fool with his, like, real main gig being a spy in the way Moon Boy is. And I mean, like... This was Butterbump's, like, dream job. It's not the career path that Dantos was trying to take, you know. This is Dantos. It's not even, like, his fallback. He's like, I had to make a really fast pivot. <sighs> Moonboy's no mushroom, though, and the Tyrell True. court is everything a queen's court should be. And it hides all of the courtly intrigue even better under those perfumed flowery layers. True. Why not peel those back? Anyway, while the ladies and the readers are entertained by Butterbumps, <laughs> a leek and mushroom soup. I'm going to add in this mushroom because it is a leek and mushroom soup is served. Mm -hmm. It sounds real good. Olena mm -hmm. then turns the conversation to politics. And Olena asks Sansa, like, do you know about my son, the Lord Puffish of Highgarden? And Sansa courteously tells Olena that he is a great lord. And Olena's like, uh, he's a great oaf. Just like his dad. <laughs> yeah, Luther Tyrell rode himself off a cliff while he was hawking. Is this true? Yeah, he was oh just God. on a horse. And he just like was looking up at the sky and rode off a cliff and died. And his son is doing the same, Olena says. But this time he's on a lion, not a horse. Who says George R. R. Martin doesn't do comedy and only does tragedies? <laughs> Should you ever have a son, Sansa? Beat him frequently so he learns to mind you. I only had one boy and I hardly beat him at all, so now he pays more heed to Butterbumps than he does to me. A lion is not a lapcat, I told him, and he gives me a tot tot mother. There is entirely too much tot toting in this realm. If you ask me, all these kings would do a deal better if they would put down their swords and listen to their mothers. Yeah, like Catelyn Stark. Exactly what I was thinking. Also, yep. part of the success of Jaehaerys. I mean, yes. he kind of listened to his mom. Eventually he was like, nah, mom. But he also listened to his mom a lot, you know? You know who shouldn't have listened to their mom? I, I don't know where you're going. Aegon II. Oh. Yeah, agreed. Sansa is surprised at the brash way Lady Olena speaks to her. Olena asks her the truth about Joffrey, and Sansa finds herself incapable of coming to answer. Butterbumps is still proving a distraction for the court, but Sansa is nervous someone will hear. She gives false, empty niceties about the king. She calls him a lion. She says he's brave. Olena says she is starting to wonder if Sansa is as dense as everyone at court says. Sansa then interjects that Joffrey is comely, and Olena says even Arian Brightflame was comely, and he was a monster. I kind of like this Easter, not Easter egg, but this callback, right? That Arian Brightflame makes an appearance in here. Yes. Uh, what Olena does here, though, is very clever. Like, she, in this moment when she's like, okay, I'm not getting anything out of Sansa, she, like, the text says, she's reached to snag a passing servant. I am not fond of leeks. Take this broth away and bring me some cheese. And for a second, this seems a very 
inconsequential. It seems like Elena's just being very capricious in her choice of food and super picky. But what she's actually doing here is she's giving the servant a reason to leave the room. She's ordering the servant to leave the room. Because as we've seen in Sansa's other chapters, she, Sansa talks about the servants being changed out constantly because they're spies and reporting on what she's doing. So by sending the servant away to get cheese, Olena's creating a private space for Sansa to be able to tell her the truth safely and feel secure in being able to do that. It's interesting because she really embraces another form of weakness, of woman weakness. We see Sansa embracing that kind of, you know, hedgehog mentality of just like, you know, play dead, whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, stay inside yourself and no one can touch you. And Olena does the same kind of thing. She plays the weaker, older woman when you look at her. But mm -hmm. when you talk to her, she's very sharp. She's very quick witted. She's not just like this wizened old, old woman that doesn't speak. She... She does things for a reason. And she continues to show this and demonstrate this throughout the chapter, even showing her knowledge of Varys and his little birds. It's the same thing that Daenerys does when she says, I am but a young girl who knows little in the ways of war. It's the same sort of strategy. Olena then commands Sansa to tell her the truth, and she asks, asks her, are you frightened? And she says nothing will come of Sansa for telling the truth. But Sansa quietly says that her father always told the truth. Yeah, Olena catches that, and she says, Your father was an honest man, but they strung him up on the spikes as a traitor for all to see. And so Sansa snaps. She says that Joffrey did that. Joffrey promised mercy for my father, and then he killed him, and then he forced me to look at it because he sucks. Yeah, she's unable to say any more. She's afraid Joffrey might find out. I, I can't. What if she tells him? What if she tells? He'll kill me for a certain then, or give me to Sir Illyn. I never meant... My father was a traitor, my brother as well. I have the traitor's blood. Please don't make me sing more. With encouragement from Marjorie and Olena, of course, Butterbump singing the bear and the maiden fair, Sansa finally, for the first time in over a book, gets to tell someone what a fucking piece of shit Joffrey is. It feels real good. Yeah, let it out, babe. It feels real good. And of course, this kind of plays a little bit into what we were talking about last chapter, where the truth comes out in the open, underneath the stars, in the godswood, where Dantos and Sansa are talking about the truth here. Sansa's doing it in public, and that somehow provides more of a cover. And Georgia also subtly uses some sensory imagery here to show us that the truth is coming out now. When Sansa first met Elena... Elena, as we were talking about, portrays herself as this little old woman, and she smells of rose water. But here, with Butterbump singing real loud and no servants, Elena's then leaning close to Sansa. The Queen of Thorns was so close, she could smell the old woman's sour breath. So, all those niceties, all those rose roses and, like, smelling good shit is gone, because now the sour truth of Joffrey is coming out, and also the Tyrells. Very well put. Sansa says Joffrey's a monster, that he lied about the butcher's boy and made her father kill her wolf, that he had the Kingsguard beat her when he's unhappy with her, that he's evil and cruel, and the queen is too, which a lot of interesting stuff happens right mm -hmm. in this moment, because it's not just Sansa telling Joffrey's cruel crimes to them. Some of this, she isn't even giving them a context. It's just coming out. The dam broke, right? It's just mm -hmm. coming out at her. She, she doesn't give any context about who the hell the butcher's boy is. They don't know who the butcher's boy is. They weren't there. 
And they don't know anything about her wolf. They don't know any of this stuff that she's just spouting out now. And it's also interesting because she admits Joffrey is the reason her wolf's dead. Something a year mm-hmm. ago Sansa couldn't quite admit and wanted to put on the queen and her sister. Sansa's truly opened her eyes at this point in the story. And not only, and she not only understands the danger she's in, she's cautious to overstay in the secret garden. It's most definitely the Tyrells in their element as well. They bring Sansa to their rose garden in the start of the book. I think it's interesting we start the book with that. Does she want her to love me too? We end Sansa's story in a storm of swords in the eerie, surrounded by snow with, I am stronger within the walls of Winterfell. Such a flip. Marjorie and her grandmother exchange a very certain look after this truth comes out with one another. And then Marjorie asks Sansa, would you like to visit Highgarden? Because, like, we would be super happy to have you there. She's telling her that there will be singers and crows and fountains and harpists and fiddlers and marble columns. And did Varys give them all this information, too? <laughs> is, like, is she just, like, that obvious? I don't know. And then Marjorie's like, oh, do you like hawking? We have excellent hawking here. And Sansa's like, a little. And I'm just like, I didn't know this about you. When were you into hawking? <laughs> I don't know. Of course, all of this leads up to the best part eventually. You will love Highgarden as I do. I know it, Marjorie brushed back a loose strand of Sansa's hair. Once you see it, you'll never want to leave. And perhaps you won't have to. That's not ominous. Her hair, her hair, the maid with honey in her hair. Shush, child, the Queen of Thorns said sharply. Sansa hasn't even told us that she would like to come for a visit. Oh, but I would, Sansa said. Highgarden sounded like the place she had always dreamed of, the beautiful magical court she had once hoped to find at King's Landing. Of course, this is the opposite side of the Lannister manipulation spectrum. I might even argue it's similar to Cersei in A Game of Thrones, but much better done, neatly. Marjorie's intimacy, her gentle way of ensnaring Sansa in the Tyrell vines, is only beginning in this chapter, and it sets it up to crash down on the ground a few chapters later. Of course, Olena shoehorns his Cersei-like behavior in right then and there. She does the same thing we see Cersei do in the throne room with Sansa when they send Jane Poole away. She does the talking in front of a kid who's too dumb to understand what I'm implying thing. Sansa's smart enough to question it at least this time, and she thinks what she's served isn't as awful as everything else she's been served. For sure. And then Olena, of course, reveals the true purpose of their questioning. Uh, They want her to marry the heir of House Tyrell. That'd be rad for them. Right, right. And of course, it's a little misdirection for Sansa because in her mind, she has built it up not to be the heir. She has built up this person to be Loras Tyrell. Mm -hmm. But they are talking about Willis Tyrell. Only good Tyrell, mostly because we haven't (laughs) met him yet. Thank God. Uh, Don't at me. I fucking said what I said. This is like a gender flip version of Catelyn's dream for Rob. She's like, why couldn't you have like... Why could you have big Marjorie? All the people. Yeah. Right. But, of course, Sansa doesn't really know who Willis is. Uh, she thinks that they're talking about Loris, and then Elena chastises her, and she's like, Loris is at the Kingsguard, you idiot, and can't marry anyone now. And Sansa tries to save face, and she's like, oh, okay, we're cool, cool. Like, is the heir of Highgarden nice? Like, is he as gallant or good a knight as Loris? Olena and Marjorie tell Sansa the truth. Willis is a nice young man. But he was injured and disabled by Oberyn Martell. 
And we start to get that hint of the animosity that builds up in the book with Oberyn. Really good mm-hmm. setup. And I mean, I'm just like confused. This is just a thing that I'm not sure I understand. Like Marjorie and Olena, they exchange it and like they're very forgiving. They're like, oh, just tell her the truth. And they don't think it's weird that Sansa doesn't know about Willis and his accident. Like Tyrion knows about it. Like, is this not common knowledge across the Seven Kingdoms? Like, isn't this something that everyone knows? If the son of a great house was injured by the son of another great house, I just do not understand. I suppose, but I mean, we're looking at Sansa came to court with a steward's daughter as her companion, her one and only companion. She's not on the up and ups of the big, big gossip like this. And I feel like it was kind of put hush hush, especially because the Martells didn't want it to be a big deal. And the Tyrells, I mean, Willis and Oberyn didn't want it to be a big deal, right? They talk about it at one point and how, hey, they're cool. They're cool. It wasn't really, you know, they still write to each other all the time. Yeah. It's just everyone else mad on their behalf. Yeah. Well, it also builds up all these like prejudiced mm-hmm. notions of the Dornish and the Reachmen. And you look at like, you know, we get it with Aries Oakheart. We get it uh, all over That's the true. map. There's actually a lot of uh, Reach versus Dorn in Fire and Blood we're going to talk about, I'm sure, too. Oh, at some definitely. Point, so. And then finally, the song ends. I don't know. Elena's like real jazz and her cheese comes out. She's super happy about that. The song did end. It's over. The Rose Garden is done. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that the entire way that this chapter is framed, and it's a running thing throughout the book, the way song plays a role in it, like the truth comes out because they're under the cover of that song, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, which recurs so many times in many different ways throughout A Storm of Swords, and this is notable because the whole name of the series is A Song of Ice and Fire. Yes, it is. That's perfect. Oh, I love that, and I love that Sansa's, Sansa's story forever remains That's a song. That's true. That's true. It's also just interspersed throughout the chapter really well. Like, it makes it kind of jarring because you're like trying to read what's going on, and then you're like, oh, look at these words in caps about... A bear? A bear. <laughs> and honey, and like, what the hell is going on? And, and it makes it just as confusing and difficult to understand what's happening, which is the point. That's what the Tyrells want to happen for anyone else who's listening in on their conversation. Yeah, it works smoothly, and uh, they sowed their seed that oh. day, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that wraps us up on our Episode 29, Sansa 1 in A Storm of Swords. God, I'm so excited we're at Storm of Swords. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. So much happens in this book. Yes, thank you everyone for tuning in. Be sure to keep tuning in and following along with whenever things happen. Subscribe to us on social medias like Girls Gone Canon on Twitter or shoot us an email. Maybe you liked this episode, maybe you didn't. Or maybe you like want to say something to us about, like I don't know, Vare. And yeah, shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. As always, you can give us a subscribe on Podbean, where we're hosted, on iTunes, on Google Play, on Spotify, on Acast, and on Stitcher. And then, of course, if you would like, you got a few bucks laying around, you can also subscribe to our Patreon. As we said, we have 
two episodes coming out this week. This one that you're listening to and another one in which we begin breaking down the Dance of the Dragons. I'm excited. It's gonna get fiery. It is. We also really like the Dance of the Dragons. I think it's I love the Dance of the Dragons. It's such a big deal. And honestly, in Fire and Blood, you guys, there's so much more added to it. It's it's impeccable. I'm excited. It's so dense. There's a lot to get through. And we're really excited to go deep in on this analysis and do a series sure, on it Sure, the dance is dense. Yeah. So $5 or up a month, you will get that. Uh, and hey, if not, eventually someday we'll release it. Don't worry. And Maybe. Otherwise, I mean, you guys, we're going to do this for free for like ever. I mean, for literally at least four yeah. years. Unless we murder each other first, like Game of Thrones style. Wow. And that is how we're closing our podcast, you guys. I've been Chloe. Find me on the internet at Liza Narver. And I've been Eliana. You can just find me on the internet somewhere as Glass Hill Girl or like whatever at Arithmetric. Peace out.